picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily upset. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance, that you and the child leave the auditorium. Listening to the Rude Horror Podcast episode 64. Today we're going to be celebrating the godfather of Gore's birthday. Herschel Gordon Lewis is the main topic today. It's his birthday today. And uh, I thought, what better way to talk about Herschel on his birthday with none other than one of his best friends, Joe Castro. So, uh, this is going to be a fun episode. Uh, if you're not familiar with who uh, Joe is, he's a special effects artist and director. Uh, he's also worked with Herschel Gordon Lewis on uh, Blood Feast 2. And uh, Herschel plays a big part in Joe Castro's movie, Terror Tunes 3. Uh, so, you're going to hear uh, a lot of stories about Herschel from Joe. And, you know, we we just talk about Herschel's films. We also talk about Joe's film career and, uh, you know, the the cinema work that he did with Herschel, etc. And I do want to mention that uh, I had some audio issues while recording, so uh, I tried to fix it up as best as I could. So I hope you guys can... uh, look past a little bit of the audio flaws i think it ended up pretty good but uh it's it's the listener's call i guess but uh so my apologies if it's not up to your quality of of your listenership i don't know uh but yeah uh if you're not familiar with who herschel gordon lewis is uh he is a legendary filmmaker and uh you know, without him, we probably would have never gotten a lot of the horror films that we know and love today if it wasn't for him and uh, his ambition to push cinema a little farther uh, at the time it was considered, you know, ahead of its time. And uh, he is the godfather of gore. He's the inventor of the splatter film, if you will. Like, he... He's the one that started it all, man, as far as the blood and gore all over the, the TV screen 
and uh, you know he's even uh, invented like uh, a genre called the roughies and uh, you know he's worked on uh, exploitation and uh, sexploitation films so he's he's kind of one of those filmmakers that's kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything but he sends a, a pretty strong message to the crowd with uh, his horror side of filmography you know including Blood Feast uh, including 2000 Maniacs Color Me Blood Red A Taste of Blood The Gruesome Twosome She Devils on Wheels uh, The Gore Gore Girls and Who Could Forget The Wizard of Gore you know these movies have left an impact on uh, people all over the world and uh, you know eventually Blood Feast 2 the sequel was made and then uh, a remake of The Wizard of Gore happened so uh, you know these movies were highly influential to uh, newer generation of filmmakers and uh, I think uh, his films will live forever so uh, without further ado we're just gonna dive right into the conversation there's no intro or anything joe and i just start talking conversing and uh we we get to the herschel topic and uh it's it's a great conversation there's there's lots of good info in there so i hope you all enjoy I uh, do have a maniac tapestry. I should have put that up behind me. A, ma- a maniac. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I love yeah. maniac. Yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, Joe Joe Spinell's maniac. Yeah. I just worked on a movie recently that was that pays homage to a lot of that film. It's called Nightcaller, and it's directed by Chad Farron. And um, I did um, I think three on-screen scalpings in the film, and. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of other really cool stuff in it that uh, that uh, Chad kind of you know paid homage to, but then brought his own original concepts into. And uh, uh, I, I'm really not at liberty to tell the secrets, but there's some you know when people hire me, they're hiring me because they want to do something that's probably never been done before. They don't hire me to do you know Marvel a Marvel film where you know it's like the thing that you've seen countless times before. Yeah, we we you know so. But uh, yeah, I think I got a chance to to um, uh, see Railsback's in the film, and I got a chance to play Back's character. I was a body double in it, and wow, got to act in it and wear some of the special effects in it with Steve and um, uh, and Robert Miano and uh, uh, a whole bunch of other famous uh, indie horror uh, movie stars and uh, Kelly Maroney and uh, Maroney Mar- Kelly. Yeah. And she's, uh, you know, I mean, just to be, I, I like, I went up to her on set. I worked with her before in other films, but we had a chance to sit down and like really get on this set. And I said, Kelly, I saw Night of the Comet when I was 13 years old in the movie theater. It was, I remember like exact, I remember like the, I remember everything. It was a Saturday afternoon. It was like the 10 a.m. showing. It was at England Park Mall. I saw it twice in a row. I saw it uh, two, two screenings in a row. Cause you know, you buy a ticket and you just sit and my mother would, would go and do shopping or go do laundry and just drop me off at the theater. And, uh, and uh, I said, and then here I am now, you know, sit, sit, work, working, you know, working with you on set, you know, where it's, it's set. and she just like, you know, just kind of like touched, 
touched her soul, touched her heart, you know, and uh, she knew it was important to me. And, um, and you know, and then with Steve, I, I didn't even have to say it. it's so funny. Whenever I work with, with movie stars on set, I'll, I'll, they'll see me coming along and you know, I'll go to go walk up to them and they can just see that twinkle in my eye. You know, this is a, you know, a, we, we used to be called squids, uh, special effects artists that were basically sci-fi horror fanatics. You call it, they used to call it squids. I don't know if they still use that term. That was like a, like a nine, a nineties term. We were squids. We were, we just kind of, I don't know why they called it squids, but they did. And we would, you know, hang around, movie stars that we uh, and we wanted to make special effects and be in movies with them and now i get to do that and uh but when i was uh on set with steve rails back i just i went over to him and i said man I, you know may i get a selfie with you and, and i put my arm around him and got a selfie with him and uh you know i just i i, I didn't know what to say to you he, he knew he knew i was a big old geek and um yeah, get, like, starstruck yeah i guess yeah get starstruck and uh, uh and uh, also um Oh, I forget his name. Courtney, Courtney, Courtney Gaines, Courtney Gaines oh. from uh, Children of the Corn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I told I worked with Courtney recently, and uh, <laughs> when I met him on set, I told him I said, Courtney, I saw Children of the Corn when I was in eighth grade, and it was the first date. Uh, I, I was for, I took this girl on my very first date with her. I lost my virginity to this girl. And we saw nice. children of the corn together, and he got his big old like his face turned beet red, and uh, you know I was like, "This is amazing being able to to work with you on set right now." So then I called. I'm still friends with that girl, wow. so I I sent her the I sent her the picture of Courtney and I, and then I we called called you know I called her. And I said, oh, Courtney, she thought it was amazing. You know, it was like it all comes full circle like that. So. <laughs> That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, hey, remember that one um, time? But, uh, time ago? Yeah, stuff. no, she remembers. No, you remember. Yeah, she remembers. So I was like, remember nice. of the corner recording? Yeah. So, anyhow, that's, that's a little bit about me. That's, you know, how far back I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, like a long, long time. People see my work online and, you know, it's very highly competitive and there's a lot of jealousy and envy and, you know, there's a lot of support and love as well. But I've been doing this for, uh, since I was 12, I, I made my first rubber mask when I was 12 years old, you know, and uh, most people don't even get going until they're, you know, in their mid twenties or thirties nowadays when it comes to special effects. And then they're right out there going, Hey, look at me. I think, you know, or whatever, but I mean, I was doing, but, yeah, yeah. Was very, I, but then there are people that came before me that were doing it when they were like six and seven and eight years old. I mean, Rob Berman, who's one of my, I consider him one of the most important mentors in my entire life. Um, he worked on like John Carpenter's remake of the thing. He worked on Ghostbusters, the beast within cat people. I go on and on and on. His dad did the special effects for prophecy about the mutant bear, food of the gods, uh, the color remake with Sutherland of the invasion of the body snatchers uh, on and on. Anyways. Um, and uh, he's one of my most important mentors. And uh, he, I, I see pictures of him when he was like six and seven years old, you know, playing with rubber monsters and working in his dad's, Playing in his dad's studio, so he was, you know, around it for a very long time too. Yeah, he has a wealth of knowledge. So I don't remember if I asked this before, but like, what was the first movie that got you into the horror genre, special effects? Towards like, man, Joe Castro has got it. That's a, you know, that's I'm going to answer your question, but that is that like a common question that we ask most people when we're talking about getting 
into the field because that like everybody like I, that's a very good question and it's like there is a specific film you know I guess there's always that one film that turns you know that flips that switch for everybody um, and mine was uh, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster and back in 1977 my dad showed me Godzilla versus the Smog Monster it was a Saturday afternoon uh, he was outside working on the ranch and my mother was away uh, and uh, he was babysitting me and I was seven and he said sit down to this you're gonna like this movie he knew I liked like dinosaurs and dragons so he probably knew that Godzilla was gonna be something I'd really like but he would had no idea that when the movie was over that I you know I knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life I asked him I said dad how do they do how do they do that how do they how do they how do they make that how do they do that he said that's special effects and so they use special effects and we watched the credits at the end and there was the special effects credit he says I said that's what I want to do I want to do that and uh, and he understood you know yeah like what was the movie that you did special effects on that like catapulted you into uh, more people wanting to hire you for special effects. Mm. Uh, is there like a specific movie? There were some like integral moments along my career that catapulted me some further than others. But the very first one I would have to say was um, Evil Tunes. Evil Tunes directed by Fred Olin Ray. Fred Olin Ray gave me my first chance at being a key special effects artist. And um, I, uh, I made uh, the Necronomicon, the mechanical book, in evil tunes and made the vampire demon fangs for the lead villainous and uh some onset gore uh and, uh i think the book melts at the end in the fireplace and i made a book that we could pump like uh vinegar and baking soda up through the face so it looks like it's melting and uh, that sort of thing uh but uh, yeah it was evil tunes and um uh, i will always be forever grateful to fred for allowing me to uh I think it was like 19 and uh, you know no one had ever worked for me no one ever heard of me I think uh, uh, I was uh, in the in my name was in the, the hat because of Brink Stevens you know I met Brink Stevens when I was 15 years old when I won a special effects makeup contest that was produced by the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland uh, Famous Monsters most people don't it's like who, what, what is this guy talking about Famous Monsters of Filmland what is that you know I mean you and I wouldn't be here talking if it wouldn't be for famous monsters of filmland people don't even know know what important you know uh, Forrest Jackerman was the editor of famous monsters of filmland which was the first horror magazine you know podcast website he was the first one he's the first man that did it and uh it was Forrest Jackerman if you don't know who he is you should look him up he's passed away back in the 2000s early 2000s but um he um uh gave me you know he gave he, he sponsored a mag uh, a contest in a magazine he produced called monsterland magazine and invited all these uh special effects young special effects artists you had to be under the age of 18 i think to enter it so you enter into this contest and you got to win if you win you win a trip to hollywood you get to meet you know all these hollywood special effects artists and movie stars and i won and um you know i got a chance to meet a whole bunch of people out here in the business and uh so when it came time, when I moved to Hollywood, my name was in the hat. I met Brink Stevens. I met, met um, uh, Dave Dakota. I met uh, Doug Beswick, who's a special effects artist on Evil Dead 2. I went to the shop when they were, when they were producing all that stuff for Evil Dead 2. Uh, Joe Dante, when he was shooting Inner Space. Uh, Robert Picard. Robert, Robert Picard. Picardo? Robert Picardo from The Howling and um, The Gremlins and uh, 
Star Trek uh, uh, Voyager, I think. Yes, no, I, I think it's Voyager. Um, he's the doctor, right? He's the 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 doctor. And um, uh, anyway, so that that was a very instrumental, you know, portion of my career. And, and um, uh, you know, I, I actually I'm still friends with all the people that entered that contest on Facebook. I later went and found like the names of the people that want, that were like in the second runner up and this kind of thing. And, and uh, so now we're friends on Facebook. And uh, so that was, that was nice. So Brink introduced me to Fred and Fred gave me the opportunity to work on that film. And then I, uh, I, I keyed the show through a friend of mine, special effects shop. And I worked there at the shop for many years after. Right on. Yeah. That's, that's pretty awesome. Cause Fred Olin Ray is uh, you know, highly known for like the the b movies that he's done and you know worked for like roger corman and then you know went on to went off on his own to do movies uh, i wouldn't say like he has a household name but in a way he kind of does yeah like if someone mentions fred Olin ray people know who he is yeah him and dave dakota were one of the first two uh directors producers filmmakers that made these micro budget movies they had a few micro budget films, you know, on film, on actual film. You couldn't make a movie unless you shot it on film, you know, back in the 90s. It's like, like today, every, everybody's jaded and spoiled that they can make a movie digitally and get it out on the market. Back then, you, you couldn't do it for under, like, you know, you had, you had to have some money. You had to have, and you had to have uh, connections in order to get the film stock, to get the film stock developed, to get the cameras to shoot the film. Uh, you had to have, you know, the sound had to be mixed and, and put together with the film, it was it was a much different. Uh, it was a it was definitely a bad boys club, and uh, um, not just anybody could make a movie. I made I shot my first feature film on thirty five millimeter Panavision, which is something that n- rarely no one does these days. I think a few people do. I think Steven Spielberg does it. Uh, Quentin Tarantino still does it, but uh, and I did it on thirty five millimeter Panavision. Uh, you know, just the film stock alone cost seventy five thousand dollars. That's just for the film stock. It had nothing wow. to do with the developing or the transfer or the color timing or the editing or the sound or any of the other stuff. That was just for the cost of the film stock. And the film stock had to be stored. So you had to pay a rental fee to a storage uh, storage facility somewhere here in Hollywood to store the film at uh, storage temperature. Like it had to be stored at a certain temperature. If not, the uh, solution that developed the negatives would be would like ruin the the film so it costs money to make a movie and to store it and to, yeah upkeep of it so. yeah that's pretty awesome uh was that movie terror tunes or no that movie was a movie titled ceremony and it starred forrest j ackerman and uh it was shot in 1993 and i think you can still get it online uh like through like uh france in france and um uh i think there's a t- in taiwan the thai still have you know, they have bootleg masters of the film that they still, you know, they still distribute it. There's really no way to stop them from, from distributing it. And um, uh, I've always planned on re-releasing it one day, but I just have, uh, I, I have a master of it, but we just haven't really gotten around to it. We just kind of keep moving forward when it comes to uh, making films. And, uh, uh, you know, we're filmmakers, we're not distributors, uh, but we do try to get, you know, and we cut versions of a lot of my films they were trying to get out into the market, like um, the Jackhammer Massacre, Near Death, were, were never released uncut. I like to get them both out into the market. And then, of course, Ceremony again. And uh, we're, we're getting ready to release uh, a quadrilogy of all 
four Terror Tunes movies. There's Terror Tunes. We just uh, finished completed shooting the principal photography for part four, and I'm excited to have everybody see this, see this film. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And which the Herschel is a big part of. And um, you know, I, I, Herschel saw the first movie and loved it. And so we, we really bonded over Blood Feast too. But after I showed him Terror Tunes one, he he really we really bonded. He realized that you know that I was a independent filmmaker just like himself. And you know, Herschel the special effects for his films. He shot his movies. He wrote them. He directed them. He even wrote the music for them and he edited them. And, um, uh, you know, he was a very in influential um, filmmaker for so many of us. And he, people, for, you know, people forget for, have for, you know, when someone passes on, they forget what he's done. And I, before Herschel passed, like almost a month before Herschel passed, I just, I don't know. I got this weird feeling about, about, him and I sent him an email and I said, um, and I, I didn't think no, he was sick. I actually, last time I talked to him, he didn't sound like himself. And so I sent him uh, an, an email and I said, Hey, Herschel, I want you to know, um, you know, if I, I, I just basically said out loud, if I've ever, if I have ever, you know, in my email, I said, if I've ever done or said anything that was, um, uh, that made you uncomfortable or hurt your feelings or, was disrespectful in any way. I want you to let you know that was not my intention. And I want you to know that, um, uh, because we, uh, you know, and I'm not that I had, but I just wanted to like, you know, clear everything. I was, I wonder, you know, you know, it's like you, if your passes, you want to make sure that everything is cleared before. And, uh, and then I said, Hey, I want you to know, uh, going forward, if I ever, uh, if your name, name ever comes up, I, I want you to know that I will always speak of you in a positive light and you will always have me, uh, uh, here to um, praise all, everything that you've done and to keep you, you, what you've done uh, alive and well in the industry so people can always uh, respect everything that you've done for us. And he's like, oh, this email just made my day, Joe. And, um, you know, and then it was like, I think it was like literally like 28 days after I sent him that email. It was just kind of like a fluke. I just randomly wanted to send him that as, as uh, I, you know, and sometimes you don't, I don't get to talk. I didn't get the chance to talk to him as much as I really wanted to. And um, he's very busy. He was a very busy man all the way to the very end. He was like doing interviews for us for Terror Tunes 3. And he was um, still, you know, directing films with people and writing stuff. And he was a very, very busy man. So um, yeah, I'm just uh, happy to be able to take a moment and reach out to someone that you, love and care about and let them know that uh, you will always be thinking about them, you know? And uh, yeah, he was 91, 91 when he died. He was, I think, I think 90, 90 or 91, 90, yeah. 90 or 91 when he died. Yeah. So, and um, yeah, so there you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So on this uh, episode, I, I wanted to get Joe Castro on here and to talk about Herschel Gordon Lewis uh, because uh, Joe knew uh, HGL really well. And uh, we kind of wanted to pay tribute to him in a little way. Because, you know, uh, a lot of people that, that I've seen, like, uh, you always remember people, like, when they died. And, uh, you know, for for, for this episode and, and for Herschel, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to do uh, something where we remember him on his birthday and, and celebrate his life rather than... Uh, you know, mourn his life or mourn his death. So I wanted to bring Joe in here and we're going to talk about Herschel Gordon Lewis's films, uh, the films that uh, Joe had worked on with Herschel 
and uh, everything else. But you know what? Uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis is a legendary filmmaker uh, in the sense of he's done a lot of firsts. Like he's made, you know, the first splatter film, uh, even the, the roughies genre. Um, but, you know, most importantly, he's, you know, within the horror genre, he's pushed the envelope on the, the blood and gore, specifically the gore. And, uh, you know, he plays an important part in cinema ex- exploitation, cult horror history. And without Herschel, I don't know if we would be where we're at today, uh, possibly decades behind if, you know, if that were the case. I don't know. But without someone like Herschel, you know, I don't know if if we would be sitting here talking about uh, the gore if it wasn't for him. But I don't know. Maybe, you know. Yeah, that's one of the things that Herschel Herschel impressed upon me was that. When we we had when, I remember the first time we had lunch on the set of Blood Feast Two off the set like just the two of us, and he was really uh, eager to divulge like what he saw in me that he thought I should, you know, expound upon and like I should I should I should, you know, um, uh, nurture and 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 use more. And he was like you know, he said uh, he impressed upon me that uh, uh, being truly original was was still excuse me, very important. You didn't see that in you, Joe. And I, I think if you have something going, you need to continue doing that. And that's what Blood Feast, the original Blood Feast was. It was truly original. And uh, that's why it stuck around. You know, it's so funny because people have mimicked it, copied it, duplicated it, Xeroxed it, pirated it, and 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 basically, you know, try to reinvent it in all oh so many different ways, but it's still Blood Feast. And, um, you know that that's you know that's something that, that that will always it will always be here. We just we just it needs to be remembered and be needs to be acknowledged. But yeah, every slasher movie made after Blood Feast is bay. You know, it's basically a, an homage to his film film, Nine on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, My Bloody Valentine, Michael Myers. All of them are. And, 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 and that's like the, the storyline of the deranged killer that stalks innocent victims one by one, mutilating and killing each victim in a horrific on-screen death, bloody death. Uh, and then at the end, in the climax of the movie, the killer is killed by the hands of the hero or heroine of the movie in an even more horrific on-screen death. That is Herschel Gordon Lewis's formula. So if, if that sounds familiar, it's because that is the formula of every slasher movie ever made. And Herschel invented that when he made Blood Feast. Right on. Uh, yeah, that is yeah. that is a good point to make. Without Blood Feast, we probably wouldn't get Friday the 13th, Halloween, uh, you know, all these slashers. You know, I, I could go on and on. I could I mean, go on uh, and on. Right, right, right. So, yeah, it's very cool to, to be here to be able to talk about Blood Feast but, uh, you know, but before then, Herschel uh, was making, like, uh, exploitation, sexploitation, nudie cuties. But uh, then it got to a point where things started windling down. People weren't uh, uh, buying it or, you know, it wasn't uh, – the market was kind of getting lower on that. So uh, 
and so he wanted to make something that was never done before and it pushed the envelope as far as uh, what the viewership has uh, never seen before in you know trying to get a reaction out of people so once he made blood feast the rest was kind of history and you know then we start seeing films like 2000 maniacs uh the wizard of gore gruesome twosome the gore gore girls etc but uh then after the wizard of gore 30 years later he would go on to make the sequel to blood feast blood feast 2 and was that the first time that you uh, got to meet Gordon and, and work with uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Was was it Blood Feast too? It's a funny story. Uh, you know, I saw Blood Feast when I was probably fourteen, and back in Texas, uh, I had a cousin. His name is uh, Eddie Perez, and he was thirty three when I was twelve. That's when I met him. He was eleven, uh, tw- uh, twenty two years older than me, and he had like this massive collection of VHS and Beta um horror films he had like every horror he collected every horror movie there was he was a he was a really avid uh, horror collector and um i remember watching blood feast and he told me that it was pretty 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 bad you know it's gonna be pretty sick you know yeah. and i remember it really stood out it was like i saw all the modern horror films you know the howling and friday 13 and there was that like hollywood look and then i then then there's blood feast and it has this like snuff kind of dark really twisted no you know it was uh, it was brutal very 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 brutal feeling you kind of feel like you're you're when 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 you're done watching a herschel movie you kind of feel like you've been assaulted <laughs> right <laughs> like like but someone someone said it's, you feel like your eyeballs have been raped you know right, yeah you're forced like, to watch something that you didn't know that you were going to watch and um you might need to take a shower after watching one of lewis's movies <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's how I felt. Oh, pretty gross. <laughs> right. And then uh, many, you know, I don't know, 14, uh, flash, flash forward to 2001. I made a movie called Terror Tunes. And um, uh, my dog is chewing on a bone back here. Can you hear that? I can't. No? Okay, good. Uh, he's, got a, he's got a chew toy. Anyways, uh, so flash forward to 2001, I made this movie called Terror Tunes. And um, uh, it was a success, and um, one of my rivals in the industry was asked to make the special effects for Blood Feast 2. And uh, he didn't think they had enough money to do it correctly. So he asked me if I wanted to do it. Now, later on down the line, I would, I would discover that the reason why he gave it to me was because he wanted to see if it would fail. He wanted to see me fail because he knew there wasn't, he, he believed in his mind there was no way it could be done for the amount of money they had to spend. Turned out to be the biggest moment of my career. Turned out to be one of my life. And it was a big success. Joke's on him, right? Uh, we became, became best friends with Herschel Gordon Lewis, got a chance to do the special effects for the sequel to the very first Lasher movie ever made. Um, it, it was a big success and, um, you know, proved him wrong. And, you know, uh, yeah, that was the first time I met Herschel. But when I met him, I forgot how much that movie I saw when I was 14 years old influenced my entire career. And, uh, you know, I remember one of the first things Herschel said to me. He came up to me and said, hello. They were already they were in the middle of shooting. I was taken from the airport directly to the set. 
and they put me to work. And I said, uh, he said, Joe, we need to do a scene where a girl is stabbed in the back and I want to see the knife uh, coming out the, her front between her breasts. And I said, uh, I said, okay. He, he said, can we do that? I said, sure. He said, I said, you, he said, uh, what, I said, what, what how, how much of the knife do you want to come through? Do you want this much or do you want that much? And he said, well, what are we prepared to do? And I told him whatever you want. And when I said that, he, 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 he knew, he's like, he knew that I was, I was there to make sure that he got exactly what he needed. And there's nothing he could do or say that was going to offend me or it was nothing was going to be impossible. And uh, we were instantly friends and instant friends. And I did everything he asked me to do. And um, in fact, uh, when we were working on set, most people don't know this, but uh, whenever the killer is killing someone in Blood Feast 2, that's me. I'm the, I'm the killer's hands. I put on the killer's costume and do all the killing because Herschel could literally direct me, speak to me from off camera. And it would be as if my hands were his hands. He knew exactly what to say to me. And I correction completely without there being any sort of, not that actors can't do this stuff, but when we're doing gore and special effects on set, it's not really an acting thing. It's a, it's a very technical thing. So you kind of have to remove yourself as an actor and just look at the technical aspect of it, the way you hold your hands, the way you're showing the effect to the camera, you know, not blocking the light when you're doing the stabbing of the prop and this and that and the other thing. And I understood that and Herschel knew that I understood that. So he asked me to put on the, the, the killer's costume whenever the, the, the killing was going on. And uh, yeah, he would just, yeah, it was amazing having Herschel direct me while we were doing the, and they would just roll MOS whenever you see the killer stabbing and poking and pulling out the guts. And he would say, yeah, put your hand and go back, pull out, do this, that. Now and put your fingers in the organs and this and that and the other. That was that was all him directing me off camera. And um, yeah, it was great. Yeah, we worked we worked very well together. And, and I'm sure with working special effects, like timing probably plays a big factor. And like when you say action filming and you got to start stabbing like someone in the neck like timing is probably everything because you know when the knife hits the neck the blood has to start like you know spewing like instantly you know so it has to be pumping blood and it has to just kind of go not instantly. only that some, yeah not only that but people think that whenever you're going to do something on camera it has to be done you know fast you know whatever but it, it doesn't have to be it can be that can be sped up like, like you, you want to be able to see the knife enter the wound and go down. It, there's, a, there's a, you don't have to do it so fast. Also, the position of how you hold your hand. Some people believe that it's just a matter of doing it as if they would really do it, but it's not so. If you watch a model, model clothes or model in front of a camera and you see what the picture is that they chose from the photography session, she's very uncomfortable in the way that she's standing and bending her body and exposing the perfect angle for the camera to see. And it's the same way when it comes to doing a special effect. You know, you have to, like, like if, I, if I'm gonna stab like a rubber body on camera, I don't just stab directly into the rubber body. I kind of wanna come at it at an angle. So that way the camera can see the whole blade as it comes down into the body. I wouldn't wanna go right in front, then I wouldn't see anything. I wouldn't see, do you understand? I wanna, I wanna cheat, I wanna cheat it to the camera a little bit. I want to make sure that the blade is hitting. I want to turn my hand so the blade's hitting the light as it goes in. Ding, there's a ding on it. And I don't want it to be so fast that you can't see it entering. I want to be able to see it going into the flesh and coming out. 
So there's, there's a couple of different things going on. And Herschel knew that. He knew I understood that. And, uh, you know, and so that's why we worked. We made such a good team together on set. But the, all this kind of stuff goes into play. And when it comes to doing splattering gore, and Herschel's been doing it for years. You know, it also, another thing is working with Herschel, it's not really about making the film bloody. It's about making it gory. There's a, there's a totally different level of splatter. Bloody and realism is one thing, but Herschel didn't do that. He wanted to make you sick. He wanted to make you vomit. He wanted to make you uncomfortable. He wanted stuff to be there's different gory and being bloody. And that's what he showed me how to do on his set. He showed me how to make things gross, you know. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense because a lot of his films, he has like innards, guts, intestines, yeah, body parts, insides. I, I would I would like to comment on that. You know, Herschel, you know, we, we his his techniques of filmmaking were you know were, were were groundbreaking when he did them. But today with the technology we have, we don't use those same techniques. We don't we, we don't have to use real animal parts. We don't have to we don't have to use real innards. We don't have to do that. Um, and for you know for PC reasons we, we don't we, we don't do that anymore uh, but um, you know there was a time when that was acceptable and uh, it's, it's hard for me to watch old films because of that I would never use today I would never use animal parts in a movie you know some of the greatest artists used them you know like Tom Savannah used real innards and and everybody used real Joe intestines and Right, and maggots and bugs and killed them on camera and rats and all that stuff. There was even this movie called Fear No Evil where it appears as though they drugged the dog so it would look unconscious so they could hang it upside down. And then, you know, they, they, they would bring in a veterinarian to drug the dog so it looked like it could be sacrificed and whatnot. We would never do that today. Uh, yeah, very extreme. Very, They did some very extreme things, you know, and... Um, uh, Herschel, you know, he was, you know, no one taught, no one was showing him how to do it. So he, he did the best he, he did he used the best he could. He went and got the real stuff as best he could. And he photographed them on camera and he got the effect that he wanted. Now today I wouldn't do that, but uh, I sure have growing up done my fair share of that stuff. But now I know that I have skilled, that I don't have anymore. I've used you know, in Territory 3, we used a real uh, pig head in the film. And uh, when, we're re when we re-release the film, I'm going to CGI over the real pig head. Uh, as, uh, uh, yeah, and, you know, because we can do that now, you know, and, and you know, and, and, and I did that. I did that because Herschel revealed to me that when he was shooting Wizard of Gore, there's a scene in Wizard of Gore that was omitted from the film. Uh, and... Uh, I think I've told the story a couple of times, but he told me, went over to uh, someone's house where they were shooting the scene and they had a goat carcass that had been skinned and they took all this mortician's wax and covered it with uh, a mortician's wax to make it look like a human. And they were going to cut it up and make it look like they cut up a real human body. And the owner of the house came home and they didn't have permission to film there and they just ran away and left, left it all there. Uh, and uh, I tried to recreate something like that to kind of like do that scene in Terratunes 3. 
uh, to do the uh, because I knew her was going to be a part of Terror Tunes three, and I and I wanted to recreate that scene for him. Uh, didn't didn't I didn't go that far with it, you know? But we did have a real pig head in it. We did not kill the pig for the film. Well, we went to a um, a uh, uh, a market where they already had all the animal parts prepared, uh, and uh, the pig was not wasted. I gave the the rest of the pig to the um, uh, to the to the young man who 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 actually was a worker there at the um, at the first to take home to his family, and he was like a, a Puerto Rican worker that was there uh, in Florida, and um, you know so. And that's when my whole attitude started to change about using real innards and bugs and stuff. I would never use real bugs. I never use real bugs anymore. Worms, maggots. When I see maggots and worms and mealworms used in movies these days, uh, young independent filmmakers put maggots in blood, worms in blood. You know, I, I tell them, you don't have to do that. First of all, it's not impress it doesn't impress anybody. No one wants to see those bugs floundering around in syrup. Um, it's not impressive and um, it can be done without killing those bugs and uh, as far as real animal parts no one wants to see real animal parts anymore at least it's not yeah. we just don't, it's not it's not entertainment and um, and uh, and there are people that have the technology and the skill to make them so we don't have to use that anymore and uh, you know which goes back to it's hard for me to watch some of my old favorite films you know like Herschel's movies full cheese films uh, even the movie Dune the David Lynch film uh, there's a scene, I guess, where they butcher all these people and there's all these innards laying all over the ground uh, in some chamber where people are killed and eaten or something. And they're spraying off all the animal parts. They have all these animal guts and they use real animal guts. I kind of feel like it almost, I tell people, do not use real animal parts in your movie unless you want to curse your film. Um, there is a certain taboo curse that comes with using an actual living creature's dead body for your, you know, even real animal bones. I don't use, I don't use real animal bones in my films. And um, I try to impress upon young filmmakers not to do it because uh, yeah, like, like Dune was a financial flop because of it. You know, even though Blood Feast is, was a huge success um, in many different ways, it's still, it's kind of taboo in many ways too, you know, kind of, uh, um, it was never accepted into mainstream cinema, you know, even though it was never really even acknowledged in mainstream cinema. So uh, there's, I guess, it, there's good and bad that comes with all of it. But uh, yeah. It kind of hits the underground scene a little more like the 42nd Street cinema, like the grindhouse scene. That kind of seemed like more of the audience for Herschel Gordon films. I didn't even really hear about, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know how successful it was when it was first released, even though it were longevity, it's had this amazing run and everybody knows about it. You know, and a lot of new people don't really know about it. No one's really seen it lately, you know. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would remind, well, if you're really into horror, you need to go back to where it all began and uh, check out uh, Blood Feast and Ursula Gordon Lewis and, you know, so. And not to plug in era video, but they did put out a fantastic release of Herschel Gordon Lewis feast. Uh, it has like 14 films on it, jam packed with special features like commentary tracks. Uh, Gordon does uh, introductions to each film and 
you know, there's just tons of stuff. I, I actually haven't been able to watch all of it just because there's so much stuff. And, you know, it just, it really is amazing. So the listeners should check it out. Does, does, does he talk about his blood formula? Uh, I, I haven't really dug a whole lot into the, the Blood Feast commentary tracks. So I don't know if he actually says anything about that. He, he, I don't, I don't think he's mentioned. To my knowledge, he told me that I'm the only person that knows about it. So uh, he, he, he divulged his blood formula to me back in 2009, 2007, 2000. God, it was, I think it was 2007. 2007. He told me the blood formula for Blood Feast, original Blood Feast, and uh, I still use it. I still use it every once in a while and um, I'm the only person that knows about it. And one day I will tell somebody else before I pass on what the formula was. And uh, it was the first blood exploited in, in motion picture cinema. You know, I mean, yes, they used blood in other movies, color films, but this was the first blood that was exploited for blood on the cinema, on, on, on the screen. There's like a vibrant look to the blood. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, like a gross, vibrant look. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe and I will continue talking about the Godfather of Gore, but first, I just want to play a quick message from the Root Horror Podcast Network, and then we'll dive right back into the conversation. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, well, um, I, I'll say I was watching uh, The Wizard of Gore the other day, and I was watching this scene where uh, the Wizard of Gore, the magician, had laid uh, the lady on this table, had tied her hands up, and then the this big press was going down on her on her guts and you know, you can just see a lot of the, the gore just spilling out of her guts or out of her, her stomach area. And I remember my wife walking in and she's just like, Oh my God, like what the hell she's are like, you watching? The, like yeah. turn that shit off. So uh, I was like, you know, I'm just kind of gearing up for this uh, whole Herschel Gordon Lewis yeah. conversation. Yeah. yeah. yeah that, that's the stuff. That's my favorite film of his is the wizard of gore. I actually asked him, I think it was 2008 or 2009. Herschel, can I remake The Wizard of Gore for you? And he said, sure you can, but I don't own it anymore. <laughs> he said, I don't own the rights anymore. I sold uh, The rights have been sold to another company and they, they, they retained them, the rights to the film. And, uh, and then he told me it was going to be, it was already in the process of being remade. I think at the, like, it was already had just been remade. This is before, right before you know, the, the remake came out with Crispin Glover. And um, I had no idea. Uh, someone who beat me to the punch, but you know, uh, yeah, yeah, that's my favorite yeah. film. And I want to say like it's funny or anything, but like, but like it kind of shows you that a film made 
1970 can still have impact on people today. Yeah. You know, like future generations watching this. Yeah, that the my favorite part is the torture device on the girl's head. And it's and it's just a mannequin. It's like it's not even a real girl. I mean, it's it's a mannequin. It literally, it's on a mannequin, but for some reason, the way he did it, it kind of like works in the '70s style, and it it looks like you're looking at a real thing. And the girl was dressed like I guess her features were like the mannequin, so it worked. And uh, I love it. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, it just goes on and on and on. He's twisting that thing on her head, and yeah, that was great. Right. And, and when he was making this movie, I don't think he was planning on these films getting like 4K restorations or, you know, so like a lot of the magic from the film, you know, like the special effects techniques, you can see him playing his day like uh, the magician's eyebrows are clearly painted on. Right. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just like Fuad in his gray hair and uh, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I always, I, I always, uh, I'm always concerned about messing around with Egyptian stuff. Like, I made a mummy movie. Uh, we called uh, "Evil Unleashed the Mummy," and we went and got like some actual Egyptian religious artifacts from some Egyptian religious store in Hollywood. And I'll tell you, that movie was cursed. I mean, there was all kinds of crazy stuff that went down on that movie set that went bad. But most importantly, the lead actress fell on the last day of filming and hurt her breast implant on set. And she tried to sue me and the producers of the film. Uh, it didn't turn out well for the producers of the film, but I got out of it. But uh, it was so like the Fuad and that Egyptian curse stuff, all that stuff creeps me out. <laughs> like it really does creep me out. I try to stay away from anything anything Egyptian or making fun of anything Egyptian or playing with any of that spooky stuff. I think Herschel was really onto something when he was, when he made that film. And I really believe that that is all a part of the taboo and success of his film. You know, it's like, it was, it was, it was like the good and evil fighting for that film's notoriety and success, you know, is both a blessing and a curse for many people involved. Yeah, yeah, that that is pretty interesting. Yeah, there's like an Egyptian devil and all that stuff, and you know it's they take it very seriously. Yeah, there's all, all that stuff. I believe there's some, uh, you know, there's smoke, there's fire, there's something, you know, there's something real to all of it. And um, you know, I believe Herschel was onto something when he performed that ritual in his film, and you know. And, uh, and all of that so it's definitely something to to see that was something to see but uh it, it, uh, all that stuff creeps me out and uh i i don't i don't i don't know if i would if i would uh, ever ever go uh, revisit that you know or now right now you know even though i appreciate it i don't know that if i would ever revisit that stuff myself as a filmmaker or as an artist because it kind of spooks me out yeah that that is interesting kind of like the unknown religiousness uh, aspect to like that realism type horror, if you will. Kind of like the exorcist actually, you know, playing with like real beliefs. I mean, Linda Blair's career was kind of cursed. Yeah. After that film. If you look at it and look at 
what happened and where she thought her career would go. And also I, my, my good friend, Eileen Dietz, who's had an amazing career, but she, I don't know if you're familiar with Eileen, but Eileen plays Pazuzu, the, the demon that possesses uh, Linda Blair's body, Linda Blair's character's body, Reagan's body in the film. And the, both of those uh, women had, um, even though they've had very infamous and famous careers, it's been uh, a very uh, a challenge and also a very, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's some spookiness involved in, you know, there being a curse there with being involved in that movie and also William Friedkin as well. And um, uh, the same with an Egyptian religion and an Egyptian curse and the, the Egyptian feast uh, that uh, Herschel had in the, the original Blood Feast, uh, all that stuff. I try to try to stay away from that, even though my first film also was about a religious curse. And I can actually look back and say that I've had my fair share of uh, challenges uh, ever since I made Ceremony, uh, which is basically a, a movie about the resurrection of evil uh, and through a uh, ceremony. A religious ceremony so yep and i, I want to mention about that again because i don't know if we had talked about this uh the, from the first time a little bit but but like uh would you ever consider uh getting that that movie uh re-releasing it through like a like releasing it through like a boutique store of some sort like uh vinegar syndrome seven films anything like that Oh, absolutely! Absolutely, I would love to have a ceremony released through, uh, through a distributor. Yeah, absolutely. And because um, uh, those companies, they seem like they they love grabbing movies like that where uh, they're hard to find films, and you know they want to restore them the best that they've ever looked and show people almost for the first time. You know, these movies have been seen before, but they're still kind of lost in a way. And just kind of uh, rediscovering them. There's only there's only one beta SP master of the film left. That's how cursed that film was. I only have one beta SP master of the movie left. I have it in a closet here. Um, and if, they, if, they, if they would release it uh, on beta SP quality on DVD or Blu-ray, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be really happy to see that happen. Um, but yeah, that's something to and it stars uh, Forrest G. Ackerman. You know, someone that we need to. You remember all the amazing things that that man did for our genre and for the industry. Um, yeah. Yeah, that movie like walked in a safe somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually we do. Yeah, actually we do. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like contains the evil. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So. Um, when we talked before, I kind of was just being curious, uh, looking up stuff. And uh, before you had mentioned that you were working on a movie called Goblin that never got released, was that Todd Sheets Goblin by chance? That's a good question. No, it was not Todd Sheets Goblin. No, uh, this film was uh, a movie that I wrote uh, with my friend Richard Lasseter back in 1991, 92, and um, uh, yeah, it was just never it was never produced. It was never made. Uh, even though we had some financing for it, we began the special effects on it. Uh, the executive producers of the film died suddenly of a heart attack, and uh, the LV investment uh, disbanded, and it was never, never, uh, 
nice. uh, never came to fruition. Yeah. Because like I remember you said something about it, it was uh, was being made in the early '90s, and, and when I seen his was early '90s, I was like, oh wait. Yeah, I was so interested. Still very interesting. I have very interesting. The story is still there to be made. I mean, uh, I would always love to go back and possibly remake that one day. Uh, and uh, yeah, it could be done. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I have yet to see anybody do any like what I wanted to do with that film. No one has even gotten close to it. So it could still be done to be original. Right. Right on. What's your favorite special effect in any Herschel Gordon Lewis film? Oh, what's my favorite special effect in any of Herschel Gordon Lewis's movies? Well, um, there's going to be two answers. The one is going to be the one that he did, and then it's going to one's going to be one that we did together. Uh, uh, the, the one that he did would be ripping ripping out the girl's tongue from the bathtub in the original Blood Feast. I would have to say. Uh, just because he left that big, long, gangly thing at the end of it when it comes out, you just didn't expect this big, long, gangly thing to come out at the other end of it. It's pretty grotesque. Um, as almost like he ripped out a piece of her esophagus with the, with the tongue, which is kind of probably what would really happen. It wouldn't be this thing that we do nowadays where it's just a piece of the tongue. If you were actually going to rip out someone's tongue, the portion of their esophagus would probably come out with it. I thought that was way over the top and gross. But then uh, my favorite effect that Herschel and I did together would have to be the, 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 the skinning, the skinning scene we did in Blood Feast 2 where we literally skinned someone's head like, like, you, like you would do an autopsy if you were to pull someone's skin off their head. And uh, uh, I think we, we used a turkey carver and we cut the back of her, the, the skin on her, on her head and then we pulled all her skin forward face and that was a really important effect in the film uh and uh, when i when i made that effect i molded a girl here in hollywood even though the movie was shot in louisiana and then um see what i did was i took the money i had and i spent it very wisely for the budget of the film i uh what i did was i made a couple of oh well not a couple i made like i made arms a female torso and a female face that could also double as the skin and what I did was I made a, a couple of really impressive pieces myself. And then what I did was I took a little bit of money, paid my friend, Jordu Shell, who was a friend of mine at the time. We have a different relationship nowadays, but we were friends at the time. Then I paid Jordu to paint them. So I, paint, I paid this really skilled effects artist to paint them to make them look amazingly lifelike. And I was able to like, you know, uh, to use these pieces on multiple deaths, you know, it's, it's switched around multiple deaths in the film. So I didn't have to come with like a whole bunch of pieces. I just used my money and I made some really impressive pieces to put in front of the camera. And, um, uh, and when, I, when I showed up on set with these pieces, everybody was amazed with them because uh, I had, uh, like I said, George, you paint them and, and, I, and I spent the time and effort to make all the pieces look, look amazing. Um, and uh, when we did that scene, when we did that shot, Herschel kept saying, I want it to be grosser, Joe. And I would, I would pull the skin forward. And he said, it needs to be grosser. I said, I don't know how to make it grosser, Herschel. I can put more slime on it, more blood. He said, no, no, no. Come over here. And he took me over to the craft service table and with a bucket. He said, give me a bucket. And he, he put like 
some, I think we had Kentucky for KFC that day for, for lunch. And he put, but uh, took up some chicken and he, you know, crumpled up the chicken and he put it in the bucket and then he put some mashed potatoes in it, put a little bit of coleslaw and he poured some gravy on it. And then he put a little bit of blood in there. So now put that on the head with the blood and glory because that'll make it gross. And that's what made it gross. <laughs> it was gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how you make it gross, Joe. And I said, okay, that's what we'll do. <laughs> One thing I liked about Herschel is he was never really like a Hollywood man, so to speak. It always seemed like he was more of like a guerrilla filmmaker, always filming uh, like on real locations rather than like on sets or stages or anything. And he would make films look like how like high Hollywood budget films, but a lot of the films were like fairly low budget to almost no budget films, but he would make them look like big budget films and uh in any uh and like any smart businessman he would not tell people and these films were low budget films so that you know he could get his movies played in, in the theaters or, or wherever. You know, I like the ambition of his style of, of movie making. And, like, something got, when I was watching, uh, I think the Wizard of Gore special features, I think someone had gotten brought up that, or something had gotten brought up that about sets and Gordon, Gordon says, like, sets, sets, like, what are sets? Like, they were filming, like, on location, like, in Chicago, with, like, no stages or sets or anything. And, uh, and, uh, a fun fact, the original actor to play the magician, uh, had walked out because, uh, he was upset that he was kind of getting shit pay and didn't want to pursue the movie so uh one of the workers on sets was like running the cables or something like that and gordon went up to him and said hey do you want to be the wizard of gore and the guy was like sure you know i'll be the wizard of gore and and so you know we got this guy uh, that's that works behind the scenes of movies he's now the main star of wizard of gore and uh I think he plays the part really well. I mean, for not being an actor, I I think that he, you know, he was convincing enough. I mean, he seemed like a real actor. Well, I I don't I don't remember ever having that conversation with Herschel about that, but I do know that Herschel always said that the director is responsible for for the performances. And it doesn't matter who you have in front of the camera. He was responsible for what, what they did, regardless of whether they were good or bad actor. So anything you see on camera, it's because of Herschel's direction. It's because of what Herschel said or what Herschel did to inspire them or direct them to do what needed to be done. And you know that was something I learned from him. It doesn't matter how bad the film is or who, how bad the acting is or how bad the special effects are, the director is still responsible. It's their name goes on it. 
you know, you have uh, a lot of directors running around these days. Oh, I didn't get my cut of the movie. Oh, they, they didn't release it the way I live color timed it. I, I, I tried to get her to do that part this way, but she didn't do it right. No, you want your name on the film. You want all the glory. You have to step up to the plate and direct these people and get the performances out of them and make sure you're there and put your foot down and get your, you know, and, 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 and give some quality direction. And, um, and Herschel was very adamant about being hands-on with everything he did. And uh, that's why each one of his films is uniquely his. When you see one of his movies, you know right away, that's a Herschel Gordon-Lewis movie. Oh, I'm watching a Herschel Gordon-Lewis movie. It has its own, its own specific look, style, and feel, and storyline. And um, he has his own unique style that no one else can copy, no one else can duplicate. You know, people have tried to copy it, and they do. They do. They pay homage to his 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 look and, and style, but it's only one Herschel, and um, he did it very well. Well, it comes from being self-taught. You know, when you when you're a Hollywood filmmaker, you go to USC or UCLA film department to learn filmmaking, and um, everybody has the same. Um, the same uh, toolbox of tools to play with. That's why they all look corporate and they all look the same way. And then of course you all, you get the same, you get the same climax. You get the same, you know, resolution, you know, from each one of these uh, Hollywood made films with Herschel, you, you, you get something entirely unique. You know, you get something, a feeling that you've never felt before after watching one of his films. You get, you see something thought you were going to see and um, which is uh, which is uh, something that I think people have lost along the way. You know, you see all these Amityville movies being made and how many countless slasher comedies are being made. If I see one more apocalyptic zombie movie with terrible zombie makeup. I'm going to like like the, the poster alone will just scare you away because, you know, what you see on the posters, not in the movie. And uh, it's just a, a thin, terrible application of something that's been done a dozen times just with less money and less quality um which is you know I'm, i don't mean, mean to sound like a negative negative nancy but uh uh you know it's like looking for music these days it's hard to weed through all the crap to find the one gem right. and uh that's what we have to do these days in order to see a good movie yeah we're, we're at an age of filmmaking where anyone can be a filmmaker you know yeah, we're, we're anybody that says they're a filmmaker can be a filmmaker yeah yeah, most people don't even know what as much less filmmaking. I think most of these directors that are directing need to take a, an acting class. It's just starters with starters. I mean, I've worked with some some uh, actors and actresses lately. Um, I just started my own career in acting, and um, well, I mean, I've been acting for a long time, but I really just started with my first uh, lead leading role in a feature film. And I, you know, I took acting classes. I went to acting classes to prepare for the role. I studied for the role. Um, and now when I'm on sets with people and they're acting and these are like, people believe they are named talent in movies. They can't act their way out of a paper bag. And I don't know how to tell them you're, you're awful. I don't say that, but I just try to direct them to do something better. Uh, but, uh, most people don't even know what acting is. You can go up to any actor and ask, ask them what is acting. And if they don't give you the same definition that Robert De Niro or, uh, or, um, Meryl uh, Streep gives you, then they don't know what acting is because there is an, an actual definition of acting. And if they don't know, give you that definition, then they really don't know what they're doing. 
example. Acting is not a creative thing. Um, uh, and I'm not going to tell you what it is here uh, because I, I, I want people to learn what acting is. And, um, but it, uh, it, it, it's, it's easily, it's an, it's an attainable skill if you put in the work and dedication to get it. But if you haven't done anything to attain that skill, you just don't have it if you're not born with it. And uh, there are too many people out there these days that, that they call themselves actors. They're not acting. They have, they have no idea what acting is. Yep, yep. That's, uh, I guess, uh, the sad reality. I don't know. It's the uh, reality. We, we've uh, seen so much bad acting now on television and in uh, movies that um, people just believe that that is acceptable. You know, it's like racism or eating a shitty meal from a store, from a, from a restaurant. It's okay. The food's shitty. That's just, that's the way it is. It's shitty. Eat, eat the dirt. Eat it. Eat it. That's 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 the way it is. It's okay to be to serve shitty people. You know, it's okay to to, to have a shitty actor as a lead role in a movie and It's okay. I mean, everybody does it. Why can't you do it? Uh, people forget why it's important to be good at what you do. People forgot it's important to have high quality and standards and try to do things that are original and try to be original and not copy other people and all that stuff that went out the window, like back into like early two thousands when people started stop making original cinema. I think uh, the nineties is where it ended. You know, the eighties, there was so much original cinema and in the nineties um, it, it kind of faded away when we went direct to home video release homes and anybody could direct. And then two thousands came around and, now we're at a point where it's just remakes and um, people that have enough money, to, people that have enough money to buy a video camera and make a movie, or rent a video camera, and make a movie, or rent a digital camera. You know, anybody can have access to a red camera. It's only like what six grand or eight grand for a red camera. That's not that much money these days. Anybody that can save up a little money can get a red camera and shoot a movie. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the uh, originality has uh, kind of gone downhill you know there, there's still a good few movie movies that are original and that are good but you're seeing more uh bad films than the good ones so you have to kind of comb through them to find the good ones and uh, it's almost kind of like uh even with acting like the same thing with acting it's almost like acting is becoming a lost art of its own as well because you know it's like actors like robert de niro Anthony Hopkins, etc. Like these are like top tier actors, and I can't think of one that comes to mind that you know, like a younger actor that would be in the same caliber as these guys. I, I agree. I understand. I, I understand uh, what you're coming from. Uh, I, I mean, there the, are there are many, but whether or not they are given the opportunity to be recognized, seen, and heard in front of a studio camera is another story. And there's so much amazing talent out there that will never be seen simply because who you know is more important than what you know. And that's a game that will forever be played, you know, being a socialite and like dissing somebody or talking bad about somebody so you can step ahead of them. It goes further than actually attaining a skill that is of value and is, you know, and someone hires you for, and that happens all the time in Hollywood. I wouldn't believe how many, you know, 
backstabbing, blabbermouthed, lying, cheating, envious, greedy, untalented, gossiping people there are that have somehow wiggled and finagled their way into making a living out of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, It's the sad reality of how Hollywood is. It's all about who you know. At least that's what it seems like. Like, who has the money and who do you know? kind of the name of the game i think yeah you know i mean i i know people that that, that 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 have purchased their way in the industry you know and um you know special effects artists that came in the industry because they purchased someone's studio because they purchased someone's special effects company they they, they themselves don't know how to make special effects but they know business so they purchased someone's uh company and then they call themselves a special effects artist they don't, they don't, they're not skilled to sculpt or paint or design or do any sort of pre, preconceptual ideas, but uh, yeah, they're in it for, you know, just for the business reasons of it. And the same thing with actors and producers and directors, they don't really have any, I know directors that are uh, very talented uh, that, uh, you know, uh, will never get a chance to direct a movie with a substantial budget. And then I know directors that have no, literally no talent at all. Their talent is literally surrounding themselves. I'm hiring people uh, with more talent than they themselves look good. You know, that's a very common, common uh, thing that happens here. And then what happens is those people, um, uh, the, these untalented directors and producers, what they do is they, they find a new, there's always a new, there's always new talent. There's always new talent being born. There's always new talent. They find some new sucker to uh, dangle a carrot in front of and lie to, to get them to work for, pennies on the dollar to make themselves look good and then they just throw them away when they're done with them so that way that director can move forward it's just a professional business game um and uh i mean it'll only go so far they don't uh, they say it's lonely at the top but that's only because they you shit on those people have shit on everybody along the way that's the only reason why it would be lonely at the top it's not lonely at the top if you're surrounded by people that love you and that you can express love to but it's lonely you had to step on everybody to get there and uh, I know a lot of people that, uh, that that's happened to. I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years. I'm literally friends with uh, just like five, maybe 10 people that I knew when I first got here. Uh, that's how many people come and go. And they will all, they're, they're, we, I, we see, my partner, Steven and I have been, been doing, I've been with my partner for 23 years. We've been doing this for decades. And um, we, we can see it. We, I, I can watch, I can watch the person rise and then walk off the cliff and fall. And I can see it happening. And each each person that does it, and um, there are people right now that I see it happening with that will take themselves out, you know. And uh, it's uh, you know, it, there has to be a comfortable medium, you know. Herschel loved what he did, and then he gained success, and then he then he, then he began to give away, he began to give away uh, the gifts that he was freely given, that or that he freely attained others and he supported other independent filmmakers and he shared the love and he showed gratitude and uh he he used his i always say and i tell there's a couple of uh of uh screen queens i tell this to they use their powers for good you know you got devony pin bring stylania quigley Alyssa rose uh Alyssa dowling um these are these are women that have they they use their powers for good you know, uh, Fred Owen Ray, um, and um, uh, that's why they have these these sustainable careers that have spanned decades, and people still love 
love them and and relish the things that they've done and um, um, you know and respect them. And uh, uh, so as we move forward as filmmakers and artists, if you're not putting back in, if you're not if you're not feeding the feeding the fire with love and appreciation, it will run out. It will run out. Like uh, if someone were to tell me, Fredo and Ray is working on a movie and it's going to be released next year. Chances are I'm probably going to check it out. Yeah, yeah. Because you know he has that name where you know I know he's capable of making fun movies. Uh, that's enough for me to say I'll probably check it out. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Same. Same with Joe Castro. If he makes a new movie next year. I'm probably going to check it out. That's very kind of you to say. I want, I want to give a shout out to a couple of uh, amazing new directors that maybe you have not heard of or maybe our audience had it. Uh, they need to check out their movies. I want to give a shout out to um, a gentleman. His name is Matthew Vanaha. He directed his first feature film called Appetite for Sin. And it stars Eileen Dietz and Ari Lebman and uh, myself. I'm a star in it. And... Uh, uh, so check it out. It'll be out in the next year. It's a uh, vampire murder thriller, uh, sexy, bloody film. And uh, yeah, it's Matthew Benaha. Then, of course, uh, Marcel Waltz. If you haven't heard of his, he is a uh, director here in Hollywood and uh, he's directed several films. One of my favorites is Blind. And he just directed the sequel to Blind. It's called Pretty Boy. And I think it's going to be coming out in the next couple of months. Called Pretty Boy, and it stars one of my favorite actors, Jed Rowan, and uh, Sarah French. And it was written by a very talented writer. His name is Joe, Joe Netter. And uh, I was honored uh, to create all the gore and special effects for this new, very pop, colorful slasher movie called Boy. All right. And then, of course, we have Terror Tunes 4, which is going to come out this year. And uh, Brink Stevens and Linnea Quigley are in the film. Bring Stevens makes her directorial debut in this movie with a portion of it. She wrote, starred in, and directed a portion of the movie. And then a portion of the film is called Personal Demons. So Terror Tunes 4 is an anthology movie. Um, it also has uh, Billy Butler in the film. And it has Debbie Rashawn in the movie. And uh, just a really cool cast of a whole bunch of amazing new talent, upcoming talent. I also got to give a shout out to uh, Shane Bradford. Shane Bradford is a brand new director, just directed his first feature film in uh, West Texas. And uh, he directed a movie called Country Club, Home of the Slaughter Q. And it's a kind of an homage to uh, Motel Hell and kind of slasher movies of the 80s. And it's got some really good gore in the film. They had me come out and do some gore for the movie. Uh, George C. Romero was a producer on the film, who was also putting the movie together. And uh, an associate producer, Poole, who is uh, Shane's cousin, who uh, helped make the film. And uh, they're a new breed of filmmakers in Texas. They're going to be making some amazing movies, so we want to look out for their movies as well. Then I have Justin Seaman and Zane Hersherberg are making the sequel to their big, huge hit, the Barn. It's The Barn 2. Oh my gosh, this movie is loaded with so many stars. I get Lloyd Kaufman, Ari Lebman, Linnea Quigley, uh, B B B B uh, Doug Bradley's in it. Uh, I'm in the film. I do all the gore. I, I do a whole bunch of gore for the movie. I 
was honored to redesign the first three villains from the first film. Justin and I spent an entire year, just the two of us redesigning these characters on paper and then in sculpture to make, to bring this, uh, this movie to life. It's kind of like, uh, uh, I, hope, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. It's like if Walt Disney made the evil dead. That's how Alec I could describe it. If Walt Disney made the Evil Dead, yeah, it's a, it's a very brightly colored and dark and bloody, and characters are vividly imaginative. It's going to be a really cool film, um, and then uh, yeah, that's going to be a good one. Uh, and I know there's a whole bunch I'm forgetting, but I'm not going to I'm going to stop there. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of movies coming out um, in the next year that I've had the honor and privilege of working on, uh, and I'm looking forward to everybody uh, seeing these movies. I'm always grateful and honored to work on films, so many talented directors. Uh, but more importantly, I, I want to put out there, you know, people think, oh, Joe, he's been doing this a long time. It must be really expensive. I kind of am. No, I'm not. I, what I'm trying to say is I'm easily approachable. If you want to talk to me about working on your movie, you know, give me a shout out on Facebook, send me a message. Um, maybe there's something we can do together. I love working with independent filmmakers. Herschel was a big champion working with independent filmmakers. Ursel worked with me on Terratunes 3 and uh, he worked within my budget. We were, uh, he's a businessman and uh, I am too. And uh, negotiation is always an option. So give me a call, give me a shout out. Let's make some movies together. Right on, man. And Joe, you're the man. You've done so much. I could probably do a whole podcast just on everything that you've worked on. And, you know, you're still working on a bunch of projects and it's just, it's incredible, man. I'm very, very blessed and grateful. Uh, uh, and lastly, I just want to say right now in the Indiegogo campaign is still going on. There's a movie, it's titled Z Dead End. It's uh, going to be a huge film. Felissa Rose and uh, Kane Hodder and um, uh, Robert Mukes and Vincent Ward. And the list goes on and on of stars that are involved in the film. I've already began, uh, I've been working with the director for over um, almost a year and a half, two years on all the designs for the characters and creatures in this movie. Uh, a brand new take on a zombie apocalypse film, which is uh, uh, something that I'm really looking forward to. A brand new take, something new uh, that's a fresh idea, uh, like what Herschel always tried to and try to do something truly original, Joe, and everybody will always remember you. Yeah. Sure. Direct, oh, did I say it was directed by Robert Restro and produced by Stephen Rears and my partner, Stephen Escobar. Nice. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that one out. Um, I, I do have a couple quick questions for you, though, before we take off. Okay. Uh, you know, so uh, I think like the other day we were conversing on chat and uh, I had mentioned something about Jackie Kong, Blood Diner, because this is sort of a topic where uh, some horror fans have been talking about this and sort of like some some kind of unconfirmed tidbit about if blood diner is a sequel to the original blood feast movie and you had made some comments and would you like to uh say that here on the podcast let's see i cannot speak for jackie but i can say to my knowledge that um the blood feast uh was supposed to have a sequel and i and i believe that there was a script floating around 
and um, that uh, when Jackie got the script or Jackie saw the script or Jackie wrote, the script, I'm not sure specifically what happened, that it was, it, 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 Jackie believed it would be more entertaining to do it as, 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 a, as this vivid cult comedy spoof. And so she, she made it, uh, she, she, she wanted to do the opposite of what everybody expected as well. See, and that was her take on it. She, she, she wanted everything to be done she wanted to, to, you know, she was a, a young female director in Hollywood and she wanted to do something that hadn't been done before again. So um, whether or not it was supposed to be an actual sequel to Blood Feast uh, is not something I can answer, but I do know that it was Jackie's intention, something that hadn't been done before and kind of riled everybody up, you know, making the, the lead villains kind of hot, sexy young men instead of like, She's crazy, ugly. You know, she always went, that's what she's always trying to, to ruffle everybody's feathers as well. You know, that's her stick. And uh, and that's what makes Jackie so unique and original. I, I, I'm honored and blessed to be, I've been able to be friends with both Herschel and Jackie. And Jackie is one of my hugest influences today. She's still alive. She, she knows that. Um, you know, her movie, The Being, inspired me to make feature features as well. And, um, uh, I just uh, I, now that we you bring it up, I just I'm I'm, I'm totally humbled and still completely honored to have Jackie in my life and to be in hers today. Yeah, it's a real, real. Tr- yeah, yeah. I I kind of wish that she made some more movies. I don't know if she ever plans on making more or not. Or oh yeah, I think she plans on making some newer stuff. I'm just gonna say that. I, I know I know she plans on doing it, and uh, and I'm. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, that uh, we're going to be able to, that I'm going to be able to make something with her too soon, like soon. Yeah, yeah. Right on. Uh, so, like uh, my other question, you know, like we wanted to pay honor to Herschel Gordon Lewis celebrating his birthday. So, uh, happy birthday, Herschel! And uh, wherever you are, we just want to let you know that your films will always be remembered. You're still a big part of the horror genre in film history for that matter. You're a pioneer at pushing the envelope, making stuff that people have never seen before, and you've created madness in the likes of the future generations trying to mimic or reimagine your work or be as close to what you have created. Uh, So happy birthday, Herschel. Happy birthday, Herschel. Uh, But I also want to mention, uh, and I don't know if... This is something that Herschel actually said, or if this is just internet jingle Java, whatever. But from what I've read, Herschel has said that Lucio Fulci is a godfather of gore. Uh, I don't know if that is true, if he had actually said that, or if that's something that, like, Lucio Fulci is known for uh, his gore in, in Italy, so maybe the Italians called him the godfather of gore. I don't know exactly where that came from so i mean i don't know if there's any truth to uh herschel calling him that or not but uh, i do want to mention that his birthday is coming up two days after herschel's so uh, i do want to ask you real quick uh do you have a favorite lucio fulci uh special effect or like a moment where uh or like an effect that you, you will always remember do i have a favorite fulci effect that uh really strikes me as being the most impressive effect yeah, in, in his movies. Yeah, no, I absolutely, you know, when I, I, I saw uh, 
Gates of Hell in the movie theater the year it was released to the United States. I was 13 years old. And um, uh, I was uh, 1983. And um, the movie, when it was released, uh, back in when I was growing up, they used to have this thing called the newspaper. And uh, you could open it up to the movie listings and there would be all these like movie posters. And then it would have a little space at the bottom of the movie poster and it would show each theater movie was playing in, in your city. And it had the times. And there was this huge movie poster in the movie, in the, in the paper and it said Twilight of the Living Dead. That's what the movie was called. And it was the same movie poster, but it, but it had the title was Twilight of the Living Dead. And it was rated U, which means unrated, rated U. It was unrated. It was released in the United States, unrated. It was uncut, unrated, which is basically rated X. He said, no one under 17 will be admitted into this theater. You're 17 years old and you cannot come in. Even with the parental consent, no one under 17 will be admitted. So my cousin, Eddie, the one who showed me all the horror films, and he was 33, took me to see Gates of Hell. It was a Saturday afternoon. I believe it was at, God, let me think for a second. I believe it was at the San Pedro Theater on San, San Pedro, on San Pedro Street in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, there were two movies. It was a double feature. It was Gates of Hell and Q. Yeah, it was Q. I think it was Q. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was Q and and I may have been another minute, but I, but I think it was. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not for certain. But anyways, we saw Gates of Hell. I went in, and it was like you know, it's just like some like trashy movie theater, and. Uh, I think we were the only two people in the theater. <laughs> it was the first showing. It was like, you know, 11.45 a.m. on a Saturday afternoon morning. And um, uh, we saw Gates of Hell and the scene where the woman throws up her intestines. I, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget, never forget the scene where the guys, the, the father of the girl uh, takes uh, the, the one creepy character that's walking around and pushes his head on the drill. And the drill goes through his head and comes up to his side. I'll never forget that because the, 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 we call it the suspense, you know, he did the suspense, right? The drill coming closer and his eye and the father pushing and, and I, I, I couldn't take it. I had to like cover my eyes. I had to put my hands. I, I, I couldn't take it. I was 13. I just couldn't take it. And then I opened my eyes right when the drill went through, you know, and uh, the, the gore effect is never worse than the actual suspense. Uh, it's always more powerful than the gore you know i could watch the gore but i could watch the suspense <laughs> can i do it was worth it's all never like, the, what it's actually gonna happen yeah yeah and uh eddie i remember eddie laughed he just he laughed the whole time i was i was he he loved to see me get all riled up and excited about it he knew i loved it but he he really he really you know he, he eddie um was my kind of adopted father at the time my, my, my father was an amazing man i mean my father first he worked his ass off his entire life. Uh, and he, he died prematurely at the age of 50 from a massive heart attack. He was uh, 33 when I was 12. Uh, he was 34 when I was 13, when we see the movie. And Eddie's wife had lupus and she could not have children. So on the weekends, he worked on the uh, Texas Railroad and he would come home on the weekends. He would literally drive from Laredo, Texas, where he worked on the railroad, to my hometown in Holotus, Texas, and pick me up and then take me to his home in San Antonio, Texas, where we'd spend all weekend watching horror films and going to horror movies. And he educated me in the world of horror. 
um, my, my, my father just didn't have the time or the whereabouts to do that. And so Eddie did that for me. And my father supported me in other ways, but Eddie supported me in the world of horror and he knew what I wanted to do, how to help me that. And uh, because he didn't have children of his own, he, it, was, it was an honor and a privilege for him to do that. Eddie also passed away from a massive heart attack uh, when he, in, his, uh, in 2012, and I don't have him anymore either. Uh, but, uh, you know, Ernest, per Eddie Perez, Ernest, he has a twin brother named Ernest, is still in my life. My father, Herschel, Brink Stevens, uh, uh, for Forrest G. Ackerman, uh, Linnea Quigley, uh, Fred Ellen Ray. Um, uh, these men and women, major influences in my life and still are to this day. And, uh, you know, they will forever uh, be remembered for being uh, friends and family to the independent filmmaker, to the young artist, to the person who has always had the ch been challenged to express himself. I mean, I myself am a five foot eight gay Latino male in Hollywood. And it's a struggle for me to be seen, to be acknowledged as a professional and to be respected uh, and um, all kinds of other, uh, you know, character defects that, you know, basically poison the, um, the creative soup and the world here in Hollywood. Uh, uh, but these are people that uh, always uh, were there to lend a kind ear. You know, we just lost Cleve Hall. I don't know if you're familiar with Cleve Hall. Cleve, Cleve created the special effects to one of my, literally my all-time favorite slasher movie, which was um, Nightmare in a Damaged Brain. And uh, I had the honor to work with Cleve on several things, but but um, these are people that always, you know, were there to help the underdog and cheer for the independent filmmaker and be understanding, have an understanding uh, opinion, voice, and ear to anyone who has struggled. So we need them. We still need, we need them today. We still need them, and we need to acknowledge them and remember them. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to backtrack a little bit, but I just... I do want to say that I'm sorry for your loss. I also want to say that that uh, you're a fantastic guy, Joe, and your special effects are just amazing, man. I've probably said that numerous times, but but I mean, you know, there's there's not a lot of special effects artists out there that it seems like that that are still working on films, but but uh, you know, like the special effects department still needs to keep alive because because a lot of the cgi nowadays within the horror genre in the films that we see nowadays just isn't cutting it for like the avid horror moviegoer like myself because like with the practical stuff i want to see the the bloody the disgusting gore right in my face like like that that seems more real yeah you know i think it's <laughs> I, I first of all i appreciate your kind words about my work it means a lot to have you say that and i think there's a you know there's the the never ever's I love gore or don't like CGI. And then there's the other we need to move forward. Technology is amazing. And then the, the common ground where one uh, helps the other. And there's the beautiful meld and that blend between the two. It's funny that we have we, we were talking about this. I'm when we're done with this interview, I'm working on three digital effects shots immediately. So because I do both, and uh, you know there is a place for both of them, and there's in this world. Um, but the, but you're you're right. I believe like blood in horror needs to be practical 
death and horror, so that realism needs to be practical. There are moments when digital can come into play to assist and to expound upon and, excuse me, take the effect to the next level, you know, but, but it's creating something entirely in the computer when it comes to horror or gore. I think it, it, th th there are better ways to do it um, practically than there are digitally. Uh, but, uh, but then you have the, the digital side where, you know, it has a whole different look and feel. And I think it's, it, we have to keep the door open for both of them so we can work together in harmony. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I, I don't mean to like trash on CGI. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. But I, I'm all for like pro practical effects, you know, like I, I, that's something I don't want to see die out. So that's why I kind of, you know, am like pro uh, practical effects. I still, I mean, I still, yeah, I still think like the actual Godzilla in a suit is better than the digital Godzilla. Yeah. I think, I think it would be okay to like put the digital on top of the Godzilla suit if necessary, but I still enjoy watching Godzilla in a suit over the digital Godzilla. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So, uh, but, but Joe, I got one more big question for you. Okay. This is a big one, but, uh, you know, everyone that listens to this, uh, we're all wondering, uh, what is the blood formula that Herschel Gordon uses? Okay, so uh, people have been asking, what is the secret blood formula that Herschel used in the original Blood Feast movie? Yes. The, the, the secret blood formula that Herschel told me, that the only one that I know, I'm the only person that knows it. You want to you know what the formula is? Okay, yes. well, I haven't told anybody the, what, what the, secret, the secret ingredients are. So, but I, I'll tell you, here we go, ready? The secret, okay, the secret ingredient for the blood feast blood formula of blood is. Damn, I'm not really sure what happened there. Uh, I must have lost the connection talking to Joe. But uh, well, that about wraps up the Herschel Gordon Lewis episode 
I hope you all uh, learned a few things, found this enjoyable. Uh, it's always a blast having Joe on here. He's full of knowledge and uh, just a cool dude. And, you know, he he's a master of special effects. And, uh, you know, he, he works on a lot of cool shit. So, uh, you know, thank you again, Joe, for coming to the show. It's, it's an honor, man, to have you on here again. And, you know, and to talk about the Godfather of Gore, I couldn't picture talking about HGO with anybody but, you know, Joe Castro. And, uh, you know, this this is pretty cool. And, uh, man, so the, the song you heard, uh, the ukulele song, uh, Herschel Gordon-Lewis actually wrote the lyrics to the song. And, uh, and then uh, the song was played at the end credits of Terror Tunes 3. So if uh, that sounded familiar to you, that's where it was from. But uh, I, I got, got some more cool episodes lined up for everyone that listens. Uh, the Toxic Avenger, the movie will be discussed uh, in the near future as well as some guests lined up. I, I got some uh, pretty awesome guests lined up. Uh, I think you guys will be stoked about that. Uh, I can't really give any detail exactly who's on here. Uh, shortly, I will start announcing stuff, but uh, as far as like right now, me talking, I, I have to wait a little bit. But uh, yeah, so so stay tuned for the, the newest episodes and uh make sure to uh give the root horror podcast a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts it helps my channel and uh helps the network's channel i mean just it overall it just helps and it helps get me up on the the horror podcast charts and and whatnot uh if you'd like to support the podcast i have a uh support section on uh, the anchor.fm forward slash rude horror podcast uh, website and uh, you know you can donate at least as low as a dollar a month and it helps the show Uh, it's totally optional but uh, you know I just want to let you guys know that it does help so uh, any help would be much appreciated uh, as for plugs and stuff from my end, uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Root Horror Podcast. I'm also on Twitter at Root Horror Pod. My email is rootehorror at gmail.com. Or for all my links to like the YouTube, the webpage, uh, etc. links, uh, go to linktree.com forward slash Podcast. So, uh, but most importantly, go watch a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie. That's about all I got for you guys. Uh, hope you enjoyed and stay tuned for the next one.